Hello. Welcome to worship again. I'm very glad you're with us. We are in for a treat today, and I'll give you a little bit of the story to the treat we are about to experience. Years ago, 1986-1987, Leslie and I met a young couple by the name of Rick and Nancy Grace. Both couples, we were serving in churches that were very similar, just west of here. Rick and Nancy were in Kansas. Leslie and I were in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The churches we served had similar theology, similar background, very similar to what First Christian was like in those days. And we worked together with a, with a ministry that became known as Disciple Heritage Fellowship. We were young in those days. We're not so young anymore. But some 18 months ago, Rick and Nancy moved to Decatur to join us here at First Christian Church in our ongoing ministry as part of that Disciple Heritage Fellowship. It's a network of churches, if you will, that across the nation help each other out and provide support to pastoral staff and to um, figure out how to do life and mission in ways that go in the local congregation and beyond the congregation. We don't often see Rick and Nancy here on the weekends because they are literally on your behalf visiting churches around the country. But today, as his role and in his role as Disciple Heritage Fellowship Liaison, he's coming into our pulpit. And as he comes into our pulpit, he's gonna carry on with this sermon series that we've been using throughout Lent, looking for Jesus throughout the entire scripture, finding some prophetical writings in the Old Testament to see how they are fulfilled in the New Testament. Today, it's in the story of Ruth about a kinsman redeemer. And as Rick comes into the pulpit today, uh, for many of us, it's going to be the first time that we've met him. But I would invite you to do this. I'd invite you to welcome him and Nancy into this particular event today by, well, can we just say welcome? We're glad to have you here. And let's see what God does in our life together. It is good to be with you this morning. As Pastor Wayne said, my name is Rick. I am the Disciple Heritage Fellowship Liaison. There's two good things about that. Nobody knows what a liaison is, and half of us can't spell it anyway. <laughs> so there you have it. We do want to welcome you today, whether you're here in this, in this space or in the East Auditorium, those of you that are worshiping with us online. We're glad you are with us. And I'd like to take a minute right here at the beginning to introduce to you my lovely wife. You know what's been said behind every successful man, there is a surprised mother-in-law? Some of you are just now getting that, <laughs> which is okay. But let me introduce to you my wife, Nancy. Yay. That's the way we looked 40, almost 46 years ago now. And then last summer, we, we just took a shot in our backyard for our 45th anniversary. And I just want to go on record as saying I would marry her all over again in a heartbeat. God has blessed us with two children and six grandchildren, and if we would have known having grandchildren was that good, we would have skipped the kids and gone right to the grandkids. Amen. Oh, amen, yes. <laughs> Been in pastoral ministry, as Wayne said, for about 45 years. I actually grew up in northern Illinois, but my family was pretty scattered. We had aunts and uncles and cousins in New York and in Texas and in California, and as a result, we didn't get to see them very often. So my favorite uncle lived in the Chicago area, and his name was Wallace. Actually, his name, professionally, he went by H.W. Grace, 
which actually stood for Herman Wallace. But when he first introduced himself to people, as he did to my wife Nancy, it was, Hi, I am H.W. Grace, and H.W. stands for Heavenly Wonder. (laughs) Might give you a little bit of an indication of his sense of humor, and I think I inherited it. I don't know if that's biologically possible, but I think that's the way it worked. My uncle was a basketball coach, baseball coach. He's actually in the Illinois Illinois Basketball Coaches Association Hall of Fame, which I think is kind of neat. But the thing that I really, really appreciated about my uncle growing up as a kid is that he worked part-time as a scout for the Chicago Cubs. Any Cub fans in the house? Wow. But... Here's the, for some of you, this will be good news. When he retired, he moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, where he became the spring ticket sales manager for the St. Louis Cardinals. Wow. Now, those of you that are watching online, if you want to chat into the host for, you know, which one you want to, team you want to go for, but watching my, my dad was a dyed-in-the-wool Cubs fan, Okay. He was actually at Wrigley Field in 1945 for the Billy Goat game. For those of you that know that, that lore of, you know, in, in, within Cubs history. But when he went to work for, for the Cardinals, that was, almost, that was almost the unforgivable sin for my, for my dad. And they, they, they really struggled in their relationship for about two years. I think that's why I became a Sox fan. Any White Sox fans? Thank you, Nancy, and one other. (laughs) I remember as a kid going in 1964 to the spring training facility of the Cardinals in St. Petersburg to visit my uncle. He took us down into the spring training facility, and I was on the same field as Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Kurt Flood, some of those Hall of Famers, and I remember being in absolute awe. My uncle would call me periodically, as an adult, and really it was just touch base. My uncle was a believer. He loved the Lord. If he ever had a, a question about anything happening in his church or anything in Scripture, Uncle Wally would give me a call. The last time I talked to him was when he called me and asked me if I would officiate at his funeral. He shared again his testimony with me of how he came to love the Lord, some of his favorite scriptures that I could then incorporate into the service. Kind of curious this morning, did you ever have a favorite relative like that? An extended family member who played maybe a significant role in your life? You know, that kind of like that rich uncle that everybody wishes they had, who could take you into the family, who could provide for you, who could protect you, who could write you into the will, that very special family member that could take care of everything for you and your family, securing your future for all eternity. Wouldn't that be cool? Welcome to the book of Ruth. So I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. It's the eighth book of the Old Testament. So it's way up toward the front. We'll be looking at a few verses. Because we are going to be introduced in this biblical account to a very special family relative called the Kinsman Redeemer. Now that's not language that we use often, so let's give that a little bit of a definition this morning. The Kinsman Redeemer 
is the one who, if necessary, if you've fallen into hard times and you have to sell property, he is the one who had the first right of redemption where he could buy it back for you. If you had to sell yourself as a slave into indentured servanthood, he would be the first one in line that could buy you out, secure your freedom, bring you back into the family, and provide everything you need and provide all the protection that you would ever want. Over the last several weeks, we've been dealing with a series called Foretold pictures of Jesus throughout the Bible. Well, I believe today when we look into the book of Ruth, we will see Jesus in the role of the kinsman redeemer. Would you pray with me as we get ready to start? Father, in the words of the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our strength. You are our redeemer. We claim that this morning as we worship you together. And I pray, God, that out of the many words I might say this morning, that ultimately each one of us would hear your word as you would speak it into the depths of our hearts. God, we love you and we wait on you. And we anticipate, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts. And we do so together in the name of Jesus. Amen. I would encourage you this week to take some time and read the entire book of Ruth. It's only four chapters. All we're going to do this morning is to be able to recap the narrative story together. Then I'm going to make a couple, three observations, and then we'll talk a little bit about the implications of what this might mean for our life. So here's the story of Ruth. If you're unfamiliar with it, it is set in the time of the Judges, which is roughly in the 12th century B.C., and it is an incredible love story. But like many of the scriptures that we've looked at throughout this series, it was born out of crisis. This particular crisis happened to be a famine. The famine led to life change in many ways, and out of that life change, God spoke his prophetic word into the lives of his people. So the story starts with a couple, and their names are Naomi and Elimelech. If you ever want to suggest names to somebody who's, who's pregnant, how about Elimelech? Maybe not, all right? Well, how about the two sons, Melion and Kilion? We haven't hit him yet, have we? Okay. Well, because of a famine in Israel, this family of four had to move to the country of Moab where there was food. Now, Moab, the Moabites and the Israelites were distant cousins, but they were not kissing cousins, Okay. They really didn't get along all that well. And to, to try to draw a contemporary parallel, it would be like a dyed-in-the-wool Chicago Bears fan, like Jonathan, having to move to Green Bay. <laughs> Connie, you, you can laugh at that one, okay? Because we do have at least one Green Bay. Any other Green Bay fans in the house? Seriously? <laughs> Father, in the name of Jesus, would you say, no, never mind. <laughs> I was going to pray for the bondage to be broken. In your lives. The two boys, when they get to Moab, marry women called Orpah and Ruth. But within a short period of time, all three of the men die. So we're left with three widows. Naomi announces to her two daughters-in-law, I need to go back to my hometown, and my hometown is Bethlehem. Now that ought to ring a bell. A few months ago when we celebrated the birth story of Jesus, it is all centered around the town of Bethlehem, 
Well, Ruth, and we're going to find out a little bit more about her in a, in a bit, and Naomi have to go back to Bethlehem, and the rest of the story is going to be settled in that little hamlet. Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law and says, you guys probably should stay behind. Orpah does so. Ruth makes the decision, no, I want to go be with you. And she makes what I think is one of the greatest statements of commitment anywhere in the scripture. Because she says this, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will become my people. Your God will be my God. And may that God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death would separate me from you. Isn't that wonderful? How many of you would have said that to your mother-in-law? Okay, just for total honesty and clarity, as much as Nancy and I loved our mothers-in-law, we never would have said that to either one of them. Okay, just, just want to get that out in the open. In order, so they go back to, to Bethlehem, and in order to put food on the table, Ruth begins to glean. Now, if you're not familiar with that concept in an agrarian culture, Ruth would then go out into the fields following the male harvesters and pick up whatever grain then fell or was left behind. As you can imagine, that was quite a dangerous position for a single woman to be in, to be in a field surrounded by male harvesters. Well, an individual named Boaz comes into his field and sees this industrious young woman, and she, he asks his, his, his servants, who is she? He finds out, and he gives them two orders. You leave her alone, you protect her, and if necessary, you provide whatever it is she needs. Naomi, or Ruth goes back to tell Naomi, wow, this is what happened. This wonderful, young, this wonderful man came in, and he cared for me. And Ruth, or Naomi recognizes the name and says, ooh, look. He's one of our special relatives. He could be that one called our kinsman redeemer. So here's what I want you to do. And she develops this wonderful plan. She goes to her daughter-in-law and says, now, Ruth, listen. I want you to get yourself all cleaned up. I want you to put on your best dress. I want you to put on that killer perfume. And I want you to go to the field where Boaz is sleeping. Because he'll be sleeping out in the field to protect his pile of grain so that thieves don't come to steal it. And when you find him, you sneak up on him. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to uncover his feet. <laughs> what? I don't get it. But somehow in that culture, uncovering of someone's feet, let them know you were interested in them. I don't get it, but it worked. So what does Ruth do? She does everything her mother-in-law says. She goes into the field. She finds Boaz, who is sleeping. She uncovers his feet and lays down at them. In the middle of the night, Scripture says, Something startles Boaz. He stretches out, and when he pushes his feet out, they bump into something that wasn't there when he went to sleep. Scripture says he was surprised to find Ruth there. Now, I don't know about you guys. If I was sleeping in a field, when I went to sleep and there was no one around me, and I woke up and there was an attractive young female at my feet, that might surprise me. Amen? 
They enter into a conversation. The plan has worked to perfection because they find out there's a mutual attraction. But through Boaz, we also find out there's a problem. Yes, he is a kinsman redeemer, but there is one closer. And that one closer has the right of first refusal, if you would. So Boaz says, we're going to deal with this tomorrow. So he calls together the elders and they meet at the city gate. That's where all the business was done. That would be comparable to us meeting in our city council chambers. So he calls all the leaders together and he explains the story. Naomi and Ruth are back. They want to sell a plot of land. I am more than willing to buy it. As a matter of fact, I really want to buy it, but it's not my call. I'm second in line. The first in line is here. And he looks at the first in line and says, it is your call. And after initially saying yes, the first in line says no. And he looks at Boaz and says, the field and the woman are yours. The deal is sealed. Ruth and Boaz marry. She soon becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son named Obed, who is the father of Jesse who is the father of David. And the lineage of Jesus is established. It continues through this wonderful story. Turn with me to Ruth, chapter 4, verse 14. This is the prophetic word that is spoken. Now the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian Redeemer. CNIV 2011 language. I'm 67 years old. I've been saying kinsman redeemer for 60 of those years. Don't expect me to change now. Okay? So I'm still going to use the, the term kinsman redeemer. So praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian or a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And he does. But the fulfillment of that scripture is not just located in Obed and Jesse and David. It points to the greater kinsman redeemer who is the Lord Jesus himself. See, this story teaches us more than about just Ruth and Boaz. It teaches us about the greatest kinsman redeemer, the one who was foretold. It has much to tell us about Jesus. Because as great a love story as Ruth is, there is a greater love story that is unfolding. So all that raises a question. Why in the world is this story in the Bible? Well, I believe it's there to show us the depth of love of the one who chose by grace to become our kinsman redeemer. While you're there in the book of Ruth, go to Ruth, back to, to, to verse 4. In chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in the middle of it. And this is where we learn from Boaz that no one has the right except you and I am next in line. No one has the right. What gave the kinsman redeemer the right of redemption? It was because of the closeness of blood. It was the closest blood relative. Now this I believe is where Jesus is foretold. In the book of Hebrews, writing to an audience 
of Jewish Christians in the first century who would have understood all of the imagery of the kinsman redeemer, they knew the kinsman redeemer had to be, be, had to be related by blood. So Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this, as the children, that's us, share flesh and blood, he too shared our humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the enemy, the devil himself. Why did Jesus have to become flesh? Because if he was going to be our kinsman, if he was going to be our redeemer, he had to be related to us by blood. And this is why we celebrate the miracle of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. It's not a cute story. It is a story of God choosing to have our blood in his veins for the purpose of pouring out that blood on Good Friday, which we will celebrate in less than two weeks. That's the greater love story. That's the greater kinsman redeemer that is being proclaimed he has the right of redemption. But in order to earn that right, if you would, he had to become our blood relative so the blood could be poured out on Good Friday. Do you remember in the story that pivotal decision where the closer blood relative said no? Look at verse 6. At this point, the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might engender my own, or endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Why could he not do it? Because he wasn't interested in the woman that came with the land. In other words, he didn't want a bride. <laughs> How unlike our Jesus. Like Boaz, Jesus willingly accepted the bride. As a matter of fact, there's one thing that Jesus has been looking for for all creation. It's been the bride. And one of the greatest teachings in Scripture in marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. If you read through that passage, it starts off mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife enough to die for your wife. But when you get down to verse 32, Paul says this. The mystery is great, but I am referencing Christ and the church. Marriage is to become a living picture of the relationship between Jesus as the groom, the bride in his church. Jesus has always been looking for a bride, and he waits in heaven today, right now, simply for his father to say, Son, it's your wedding day. Go claim your bride and bring her back home. That's why this story is so great. The Apostle John picks up that imaging in Revelation 19.9 and says this, Behold, blessed are all those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, and I have it on good witness that chocolate will be there. <laughs> it's one of the four basic food groups, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to the day when the Father says, Son, go get your bride. What a glorious day that will be. The final picture of being foretold is that the kinsman redeemer had to be willing to share his inheritance with all of his children. One of the reasons the closer relative did not want to purchase the land and thereby marry Ruth 
is because in all probability he already had his own children. But the Jews practiced a concept that they called Leverite marriage, which meant, okay, if I die, if I died without children, then my brother would be obligated by law to marry my wife and have children through her. But any children that were born between that union would not be considered his. They would be considered my children. So when the closest relative looked at that, he said, there's the potential that I'm going to have to share my inheritance with my children. And if you would, in our language, we would call them stepchildren. And I'm not willing to do that. I want to make a distinction between these two. So no, I'm not going to do it. But for Boaz, when he stepped in, he wanted to bless all his children. Is that not like our Jesus, to bless all of his children? Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. It's a verse that uh, the Pastor Wayne alluded to here a couple weeks ago, but I want to bring it back. If we are children, i.e. children of God, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That is a staggering concept. Everything that the Lord Jesus inherits from his Father, we get to be co-heirs. We get to be part of that blessed community with no distinction between us who will be blessed forever in the presence of the Almighty. Our great kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus, is the greatest kinsman redeemer because we are related by blood. We are his bride by choice. We are his children. We are co-heirs with him. And all that is foretold in this wonderful story of Ruth. So what? What are the implications of all that to you and me as we try to serve out Jesus in the 21st century? Number one, we have to admit our need for a redeemer. I need a redeemer. Am I really that bad? Yes. And the good news is, so are you. We need a redeemer. And we have to admit that right off the front. Our culture is breeding us to say we are self-sufficient. We can do it all on our own. No, we can't. We need a redeemer. Here's the second implication of that. You can't redeem yourself. When you look at the history of God redeeming his people throughout the Old Testament and into the New, the price of redemption was a perfect sacrifice. Whether it was a perfect lamb before Passover or whether it is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, we can't do it on our own. And the third is that it is our role now to live to make Jesus famous. Did you catch that language in Ruth 4.14? He will become famous throughout Israel. Well, our role is to make him famous throughout the world. As Pastor Wayne said in his intro, and as I've referenced, I've been in pastoral ministry for 45 years, a little over that. I have been so blessed that on the Sundays where Nancy and I have been here in Decatur, where we can worship with you, our church family, I have been so blessed to sit under the teaching of Pastor Wayne and Pastor Brian. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. It's okay. 
Brian, no, Brian, don't listen. Go ahead and give him a hand. <laughs> so last Saturday night, a week ago from yesterday, I was sitting where the kids are sitting. Lori was leading us in communion. And I was having a sweet time with the Lord. And in the middle of that time, I was praying about this coming Sunday, this coming weekend, and I said, Father, this is in my prayer, in worship. This is what I'm praying, okay? Father, I'm going to have the chance next week to stand before this family and lead them in study. And Father, by the time it's done, would you just let everybody know that I can preach just as good as they can? And I went, holy cow, <laughs> where did that come from? In the middle of a sweet time of worship, worship is all about the process of making God good and exalting, lifting him up. A 40-plus year pastor is praying, God, next week, could you make me look good? So before I could even take communion, I had to have a sweet time of repentance because what I was reminded of, now please hear this in the spirit that I'm trying to offer it. Sometimes the hardest obstacle to making Jesus famous is me, it's us. We get in the way. I had an old basketball coach that kept saying, Grace, if you can't get on the way, try not to get in the way. How often do we get in the way? There's a group called Love and the Outcome. Several years ago, they released a song that had these lyrics in them. It says, how can I build your kingdom when I'm building my own? How can you be my treasure when I'm digging for gold? And there I was, asking God to make me look good. I was reminded in that moment of a quote. And here's the quote. It is impossible to make much of Jesus and make much of yourself at the same time. It's impossible. So I'm going to ask you to commit with me today to make much of Jesus. You know, you may be at a point in your relationship with God that it's never been better. You could be at a point in your relationship with God where you are like Naomi. You are angry, you are bitter, you're frustrated with God. He doesn't make sense to you, and you're not even sure you want to follow him anymore. It's okay to admit that because God still can and will use you to the praise of his glory. Can you commit to making much about Jesus? What might that look like? Nancy and I raised two kids. We wanted our kids to be good. But did we want them to be good so that we look like good parents or so that God could get the glory? If you're in the workplace, do you want that next promotion so you look good or because God can be on display in you? You preach that next sermon. <laughs> Whoops, no, that's personal. We won't go there. Okay. You see, the behaviors may not change at all, but the motivation behind it changes everything. I've learned this week to apply this verse, and I want to close with this, John 3.30. 
He must become greater. I must become less. In those times where I am tempted to make much of myself, I'm trying to train myself to quote that verse. He must become greater and I must become less. Would you join me in applying that verse? Father, Lord, we come in the name of Jesus. We come, God, because we want to make much of you. We want to lift up our heavenly wonder, (laughs) not my uncle, but our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Teach us, God, to make much about you, that you might receive the praise and the honor and the glory. In the name of Jesus, Father, amen.